Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com easter24. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. And our topic today is Israel and anti-Semitism. And I have with me uh, two of the most uh, significant people, among the most significant people in the Messianic Jewish movement. Uh, and uh, it's David Brickner of Jews for Jesus, who's with me here in the studio, and Mitch Glazer, who runs uh, Chosen People Ministries. We've got him Skyped in from uh, the lovely island of Manhattan. And uh, uh, thank you all for joining me today. It's great to be with you. Yeah. Now, um, let's talk a little bit about each of your ministries. Um, uh, David, I'll start off with you. Talk a little bit about what Jews for Jesus is, is all about. Well, uh, Jews for Jesus is a name that uh, people associate with a lot of different things. We have a little plaque on the cornerstone of our headquarters that says, established 32 AD, give or take a year. <laughs> but the organization actually began 40 years ago, 1973, and uh, God has blessed us with a, a direct evangelism focus. We exist to make the Messiahship of Jesus an unavoidable issue to our Jewish people worldwide. Mm. And so through all kinds of creative means, through direct evangelism, boots on the ground missionaries, we're active in 14 countries around the world. Our largest branch actually right now is uh, Israel. Tel Aviv, we have 24 staff there, and uh, we are, through all kinds of different ways, trying to get Jewish people to reconsider what they think they've heard and have dismissed, and that is that Jesus really is the one of whom the prophet spoke. He is our Messiah, and that we should put our trust in Him for our salvation. Oh, and, and Chosen People Ministries uh, talk a little bit about, about what they do, and it may sound a little bit like an echo, but that's okay, as well as, uh, as, as how long they've been around. Chosen People is uh, 120 years old, and I'm not the founder, just in case anybody is uh, wanting, wondering about that. We began because a Hungarian rabbi, Leopold Kohn, got saved on the streets of Lower Manhattan and had a real heart and passion to reach his own Jewish people. And so in 1894, Chosen People began. And from the beginning, we did a lot of different things. Uh, rabbi Kohn would preach the gospel, start Messianic meetings on Friday night and Saturday morning and speak to Christians on Sunday, and then Rabbi Kohn would feed poor uh, Jewish immigrants, and uh, he would set up a medical dispensary uh, in Brooklyn at that time. Brooklyn only had uh, probably uh, less than 100,000 Jewish people today. It has close to a million Jewish people. And so uh, we continue with uh, Rabbi Kohn's vision, although our website is better. <laughs> and so we do a, a lot of different things. Uh, we're in, uh, in uh, counting the United States, uh, quite a few, more than a dozen countries, more than a dozen cities all throughout the United States. Uh, we do friendship evangelism. We do uh, media-based evangelism. And then we also uh, start what we call Messianic Centers. And we have centers of operation in Israel, New York City, London, Germany, Argentina, a bunch of other places. And then we also plant what are called Messianic congregations or Jewish Christian churches. And we've started dozens of them over the years. And right now we're associated uh, around the globe with about 40 Messianic congregations that are either being planted by chosen people or who have chosen people staff leaders uh, in their pulpits. And, and so God's doing some great things and we're seeing some Jewish people really open to the gospel, and our international headquarters is right here in New York City. And the goal is to make Messiah known to the Jewish people, and to and make him uh, and to encourage uh, people to let people, Jewish people, know about that. Is that basically correct? Well, we have a twofold mission. One is to directly 
uh, evangelize and disciple Jewish people, and then secondly, is to encourage and help our Christian brothers and sisters do the same with their friends and Jewish uh, Jewish relatives and loved ones. Okay, so um, so that gives people a, a sense of, of of what you all do in your location and things. So our topic today is is interesting. I think that that uh, the view of Israel has undergone a shift in the time that I've been involved here at Dallas Seminary in t- talking about and doing theology. Uh, when I was a student in the '70s and then in the early '80s, Israel was kind of seen as the 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 rise of the nation of Israel was seen as kind of a fulfillment of Scripture. God was at work. Um, there were uh, interesting things going on in the world, uh, things that hadn't been anticipated as a result of, uh, of the nation being established in, in 1948, that kind of thing. And, and the attitude towards Israel, I think, in the evangelical community was mostly positive. Uh, we've seen a shift in the last what, 15, 20 years? And I'd like for each of you to describe how you see that and perhaps why you think that's taken place. So David, I'll start with you. Uh, why do you – how is Israel viewed today and, and how is that different than what I described was the case, say, in the 80s? I think it definitely looks different than it did in you know the 60s and 70s when there was so much enthusiasm with Israel, with the recapture of Jerusalem. And I think it's become more complex because of the awareness in the church of the plight of the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. And so for many, it's not a uh, biblically-based viewpoint, but rather a social consciousness-based tangle Mm -hmm. that we really need to help uh, Christians to untangle Mm -hmm. and recognize that God loves Arabs and Jews equally, mm-hmm. and that the greatest impetus for the gospel is when Arabs and Jews can say to one another, I love you in Jesus' name. Mm. And so the problem is that you have these poles of you know, kind of a political Zionism that finds root in certain wings of the church, uh, and then the very social conscious uh, that has, is turning into a kind of a divestment move uh, among those Christians who want to kind of punish Israel for the plight of the Palestinians. Mm. And both polls, I think, are wrong mm-hmm. and misleading and not where the church should be. To find a middle ground where we care for the Palestinian situation and show the kind of love that Christ would have us to, and yet still believe that what God is doing in Israel is of great significance out of the ashes of the Holocaust has risen a modern state, which I believe is God's intention. And um, there are still many, many Christians who absolutely believe that. And uh, so I don't think that the support for Israel has necessarily waned. Mm -hmm. It's become more complicated, and we need to help, especially a younger generation, figure that out. Mm. And the only way we can do that is carve out a large middle ground where you can be supportive of Israel and still care for the plight of the Palestinians. Interesting. Uh, Mitch, what's your take on this, on this question? Well, I agree with most of what David, David said or much of what David said. And uh, we're working along the same lines. Uh, I can add to it by suggesting this. I think that our contemporary church as uh, both David and I travel around to many churches and speak, and so we have a broad range of experience, which is a real blessing, because we get to know a lot of different types of Christians. And so I, I generally see a de-theologizing uh, within the church. And I think we're on a, a descending theological, descending theological spiral, uh, which is sometimes even reflected in the curriculum at seminaries. And so I see less languages, less theology, less Bible, except, of course, at Dallas Seminary. And uh, what I see is that people are making decisions that they used to make based upon the authority of Scripture. Now they're basing their decisions in some way following uh, the culture and, uh, and so on. And so, for example, one of the values of the young people is uh, the equanimity of all ethnic peoples, religions, and others, gender issues, and so on, which you've wrestled uh, with as well. And so everybody's the same. 
Jews, Gentiles, the grounds even at the foot of the cross. There's no difference between what a man can do, what a woman can do, and everything else. And so there's no, so then trying to get uh, Christians, particularly younger groups, to buy into the fact that for some reason God chose the Jewish people uh, through the Abrahamic covenant to be his people for a special purpose that indeed would bless the nations is pretty, is getting more difficult because the culture is demanding that we see everybody and treat them all equally. And so it's very difficult to wrestle with the theology of, of, uh, of God's selection of, of people and nations, and then to try and deal with equanimity and uh, treating everybody uh, equally. And so I think that uh, we need to do more by way of biblical theology uh, to help people make good choices. And I also think that the uh, alleged uh, uh, decline in support for Israel uh, is overstated. Uh, a lot of the churches that I go to are very, very much pro-Israel, but then again, a lot of churches uh, uh, tend to be less, they're not, they're asking deep questions, but they're not solving these questions by understanding the Bible or theology because too often they're following the culture, which the church does tend to do at various stages. So I think we need deeper cultural engagement to decipher the difference between cultural and biblical values. I think that we need to increase our understanding of a biblical theology of Israel and the Jewish people. And I think that once we start doing that, then we have a better basis to talk about some of the more profound issues of reconciliation, of of living in, in peace as one people, and so on. So I think that that's just some of what I would add to what, what David said. Okay, so the situation is actually quite complex. We've got multiple nationalities involved. We've got multiple ways of thinking about religious involvement. I mean, people think, well, you've got your Jews, you've got your your uh, Christians, and you've got your Muslims. And so it's just, you know, there's three groups. But actually, within those groups, you've got subdivisions that make things more complicated because you've got uh, Messianic believers on the one hand, you've got Arab and Palestinian believers on another, and so that complicates the mix, uh, and they're, they're both minorities in the midst of these huge majorities that surround them, uh, that kind of thing, uh, making the, the situation on the ground more complex. Well, I, d I don't want to analyze the political situation so much, although I think it's important to have that as the backdrop. Let's step back and say, all right, why? what, what does the Bible tell us about uh, the place of Israel in the program of God? Let's, let's just start there and think through. We've mentioned the covenants, so I think what I'll do is I'll let each of you uh, explain uh, why you think the Abrahamic covenant is so important in this discussion. Mitch, I'll start with you since I led off with David on the previous question. So um, explain why Israel is important in Scripture and, and, and put us in Genesis 12. Well, I, I should begin with a quote from my favorite uh, theologian, Reb Tevye, in Fiddler on the Roof. When uh, Confronted with the, uh, the persecution and dispersion of the Jews from Anatevko, uh, where they would all probably move to Brighton Beach and other places like that, uh, Reb Tevye kind of looks up to heaven and says, next time choose somebody else. Hmm. And I think that it's a great line because uh, election uh, of the Jewish people in Scripture is viewed by Jewish people in terms of obligation rather than privilege. Hmm. And the obligation goes all the way back to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, where God said, I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so it's not only that God chose a person, Abraham chose a, a nation, the Jewish people, that God selected a land, uh, uh, Israel, but he also gave Abraham and the Jewish people a mission, a vocation. And the mission was to be his bridge of blessings to the entire world. He sealed the covenant uh, in blood in Genesis chapter 17. He passed the covenant along to Abraham, uh, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Uh, he reiterates the covenant at Mount Sinai, and he also reiterates the covenant in uh, Deuteronomy 7, for example, where he tells 
uh, the Jewish people, that they were not selected because they were the largest in number, but the fewest in number. And again, reaffirms the election of the Jewish people based upon his selection through the patriarchs, through the fathers. And then, of course, jumping all the way to the New Testament, this is reaffirmed by Paul in Romans 9 through 11, but especially in chapter 11, particularly in verses 25 through 29, which speak about the future of the Jewish remnant turning uh, to Jesus. And all Israel will be saved. The remnant will become the nation. The nation will be the remnant, etc. But uh, again, Paul says that the reason uh, for Israel's election is because of what God did through the patriarchs. And so it's foundational, uh, the Abrahamic covenant. It, it, it predicts the future of the nation. It predicts the future of the land. And it links the mission of Israel. And it also links the mission of the Gentiles. Because in this age, uh, God said through it, to Abraham, I'll bless those who bless thee and curse those who curse thee. And, uh, and so God... God wants to bless the Gentile nations and individual. I can make one more point, and then I'll let David run with it. Okay. And that is, uh, I'll curse those who curse thee. Uh, and, you know, there are, uh, there's two different words for curse. One is to make light, and the other speaks of the judgments upon the Jewish people outlined in Leviticus 26 and 28. And... Uh, the whole idea here is that if, if we make light of God's role and place of the Jewish people, then we might very well be subject to the curses uh, in, that were outlined for, is, for Israel based upon her disobedience in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy uh, 28. And so I think that you know, we need to issue a prophetic warning to the church. And that is that if the Abrahamic covenant is still in effect, it's not an elective in God's plan any more than anything else God told us uh, to do is an elective. So unless the Abrahamic covenant is conditional and is cut off for some reason, either by time or some other purpose, then it stands. The people, the land, the mission, the responsibility of Gentiles to bless rather than curse and I believe that this is important. It's one of the reasons why we've just done a conference on all of this and why you and I, Daryl, have edited a book that's going to be coming out that will be a biblical theology of Israel and the Jewish people. Because we need not only the Jewish people, but we need Christians to understand that uh, being a blessing to Israel, whether that blessing, you even can, we're not even talking politically. Let's just assume that the greatest blessing is to bring the gospel to Jewish people then that's a responsibility, that's a duty. Romans 11, 11, God wants the Gentiles to make Jewish people jealous. That's all part of an Abrahamic worldview. Okay, uh, David, that was a, Mitch gave a pretty he did. full yeah, uh, look great. at that. What, what do you have to add to that? Well, maybe I shouldn't be thinking about giving you more work to do, Daryl. Okay. It seems to me <laughs> that what we need is a postmodern understanding of the doctrine of election. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that kind of preferential treatment is very politically incorrect. And mm -hmm. so that's one of the reasons why people with, as Mitch pointed out, less biblical uh, sophistication and theology really wrestle with this issue of the Jewish people being called by God, being elect by God. But so the idea of a people having a special place is kind of a problem for people. It is. And yet, if we throw off the election of the Jewish people through the Abrahamic covenant, then we have no basis for understanding the election of individual believers and of the church, the body of Christ. There's that old little a poem that was written by somebody in London back in the early part of the 20th century, how odd of God to choose the Jews. Mm. And I think that is a lot where people are today. How odd of God to choose the Jews. He goes on to say, not so odd as those who choose the Jewish God yet hate the Jews. Mm. And so I would say that hatred towards the Jews may not be the best way to describe it, but kind of a, a simmering under the surface resentment. What makes you so special? Mm -hmm. And unless we can really explain how Abraham and the Jewish people were not 
elect for themselves, but for the glory of God Mm -hmm. and for the blessing of all people, Mm -hmm. and that he is now the main vehicle as children of Abraham for every tribe and tongue and nation to come together and receive the fullness of God's goodness. Like Paul says in Ephesians 4, this is the wisdom of God Mm -hmm. that was not known beforehand, but it is the wisdom of God, and therefore it needs to be embraced by the body of Christ as the wisdom of God. And then they can recognize all of the implications for that ongoing election. We need to help the church figure that out today. So, so we've got this base uh, in which God has uh, selected out Israel for a special vocation. I like that word, um, and that vocation involves blessing, uh, blessing uh, the world really through what it is—the uh, knowledge of God that comes through the revelation of the people of God being Israel. Yeah, it, God is honored in that. We've got those things in place. And of course, the, the next place to go probably in discussing the biblical base of this is to talk about the new covenant that comes out of the Abrahamic covenant to a certain degree and kind of completes the loop. Um, how is it that what, – what's Israel's role in that covenantal promise where now we've got the new covenant? Some people call it the renewed covenant. I actually don't like that name so much because it does, the, within the offering of the covenant, it makes the point. This is going to be a covenant not like the one I made on the mountain, not like the one I made in Sinai. So what does the new covenant give to this picture, and what's Israel's role in in that covenant? Well, I think first of all we need to recognize that the new covenant, as Jeremiah uh, speaks of it, was given to Israel and Judah. Mm -hmm. So it has to work for them before it can work for anybody else. Mm -hmm. And that's important then to understand the nature of the relationship of the rest of the body of Christ to that new covenant. That comes through being grafted in Mm -hmm. to the rich root of the olive tree, as Paul talks about in Romans 11. And we're definitely going to come back to that topic, because that question about whether the church has taken the place of Israel and Judah is an important question in this conversation. We will come back to that. That specifically. So go ahead. But I think that the picture of one new man mm-hmm. that Paul paints in Ephesians as part of this mystery that's Two, now been revealed mm-hmm. is, is something that we have to see as the big, the macro. A picture of redemption mm-hmm. that includes a place for the Jewish people, and that even in eschatology, which has unfortunately been the only basis for many people's understanding of Jews and Israel, mm-hmm. uh, eschatology, of course, fills in the picture not just in a future kingdom, but in an eternity where the New Jerusalem has both the tribes and the apostles on the on the gates and on the walls, and this is this coming together in a wonderful way. Of of God's purposes that stretch all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12 and all the way forward to the end of the book in Revelation. And when we get that macro picture, then we can start to apply it to some of the more pressing issues that we talked about at the very beginning, you know, Palestinians and Israelis and Jews in the land but in unbelief and all all of the implications of that that the church is really wrestling with today. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will lead me home. To hear more, volunteer, or donate, visit UGM.org. Now, the New Covenant obviously is about the law being put on the heart of people. It's, it's made to uh, Israel and Judah, as was stated. What else about the New Covenant is relevant to the conversation, Mitch? Well, I think we have a beautiful illustration uh, this week of the relevance of the New Covenant, because it was in the middle of a Passover Seder, which, of course, was a celebration of the Old Covenant, because 
It was uh, during that, uh, during the Seder that we commemorate the shedding of the lamb's blood for the redemption of the firstborn males. And we even take it further because we tell the whole story of the exodus, the deliverance of the Jewish people from Egyptian bondage, uh, the sweetness of freedom in, uh, in the promised land. All these great, great themes uh, happen, uh, you know, we've observed uh, during this week of Passover. And it's very fitting that in the, in the middle of a Passover Seder, that uh, Jesus uh, breaks the uh, what we believe to be the middle piece of matzah, which symbolizes his priesthood and sacrifice, and uh, and puts it away and, and brings it back uh, symbolically, uh, considering his uh, his resurrection, and uh, and then he lifts the third cup, the cup after the meal, and we know that that's the cup of redemption. So though there's uh, you know scholarly debate about the uh, middle piece of matzah to some degree, I have my own strong opinions about it. But there's very little uh, discussion on the third cup. Uh, that's the one after the meal symbolizes again the blood of the of the uh, lamb that was shed. And in in the middle of this seder, Jesus pours new meaning into the third cup. He raises it and he says, "This is the blood of the new covenant." And so we understand that. This new covenant, ratified by the shed blood of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, established in the middle of a Jewish Passover Seder, is an invitation for Gentiles, ultimately, to join in. And that's not an obscure part of Scripture. This joining in is not only mapped out in Ephesians, it's mapped out in the olive tree illustration in Romans chapter 11, over and over and over again, and it goes again back to the Abrahamic covenant, uh, where... Israel's, ex the, the exclusive choice of Israel was not to lead to exclusivism, but actually to universalism, but the good kind of universalism, mm -hmm. the kind of universalism where the gospel would be for everybody. The good news is for everybody, Jews and Gentiles, for all who have been brought near to the promises of God through the shed blood of the Lamb of God. And so I think that that's very important. And of course, Daryl, I know that you want us to talk about uh, uh, the law being written on the hearts, and you want us to talk about the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, which is a uh, we uh, we know we, we have a good Luke Acts connection there uh, uh, with Jeremiah as well as the Book of Hebrews. But certainly, uh, the Jewish uh, people uh, waited, and again, this is tied again to the Jewish festivals. So they waited after Passover, counted down 50 days, didn't they? Mm -hmm. And then on the 50th day, coincidentally, God chose the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot, or Pentecost, as the day when he would send his Holy Spirit to fulfill this promise. And so you have the New Covenant, the first part of it at least, revealed in the middle of a Seder, and then you have the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the Jewish people. Uh, you have that... Uh, as part of Shavuot, the fulfillment of, of this great promise. And so, uh, I, I believe that Christians should try and understand their Jewish roots and Jewish heritage and what it means to be grafted in. So, it doesn't mean that Gentiles have replaced. It means that Gentiles are included, as God always promised. So the sharing of the blood of redemption, of the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, of the law being written upon our hearts, this is not something that one or the other has, but in Christ, we all have it. Now, it's important for me just to note in passing for those who are listening that we're taping this uh, during the week of Passover, and so that's uh, Mitch's illusion, even though you'll be hearing this uh, somewhat later, uh, and that imagery is important. I'd like to make a Christological point as an aside here that uh, needs to be observed as well, and that is there's something about the authority of Jesus wrapped up in his, in his taking a um, – how can I say this? A, a feast that has been commanded in the Torah and uh, filling it with fresh symbolism. Uh, you know, who has the right to take something that's written uh, in, in Exodus 
and give it new meaning. He's got to be pretty important to be able to do that. A prophet and greater than Moses. A prophet greater than Moses. And so, so even, the, even the choice of taking this core symbolism and adjusting it in light of what God is now doing through Jesus to take one picture of salvation, if you will, and turn it into a, a mirrored but separate picture of salvation at the same time says an awful lot about who Jesus is. And of course, the resurrection is God's vote in the dispute about whether Jesus has the right to do that or not. So uh, this is a very, very important uh, part of that scene as well. Mitch, you look like you're ready to chime in at any point here. Go ahead. You know me well. Uh, I, I don't think we should lose the hermeneutical uh, factor here in this discussion. Uh, I was with a brother who uh, – a Korean brother uh, – who was raised uh, as someone who believed that uh, when you looked at Israel in the Old and New Testament, it always referred to the church. We call that replacement theology, supersessionism, and obviously there's a continuum uh, of these doctrines and, and various interpretations. And he said to me that, you know, I was so geared that, to reading the Bible this way that I didn't know there was any other way to read the Bible. Hmm. And so he was a replacement theologian from birth. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then eventually what happened is he was reading the Bible one day, and uh, the Holy Spirit challenged him. Of course, he's a Presbyterian, so you know I don't know how that really happened. Because can that happen with Presbyterians? <laughs> yeah, I think so. Maybe. Well, okay. so, he was, so he was a very conservative guy, and the Lord just said to him, you know, let's try and take Israel as Israel, as the Jewish people. And he said, once he put that together, his whole understanding of Scripture was transformed. Let's face it, uh, for many, 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 many years, the church has interpreted itself and read itself into the history of Israel, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so what we're talking about is something not only hermeneutical, but almost akin to a worldview. Mm -hmm. And so the challenge of uh, asking our brothers and sisters in the broader church to think about Israel's role actually means that they have to reinvestigate and rethink their basic hermeneutics. What words mean? How literal should Scripture really be taken? And I, I believe that that's a very important issue and I think that the hermeneutics of the situation needs to be fully addressed. Yeah, and, we're, and I'm going to ask a question that's really going to put this in focus in just a second. But David, do you have any observations as well in terms of uh, both the Christology and the hermeneutical question that rotates around the things like events like the Last Supper? Absolutely. And, you know, it goes to the very character of God. What do we believe about God? Is he a promise-keeping God? Mm -hmm. So it's God's faithfulness we're talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Yeah. And so it – through his keeping of his faithful promises to Israel, he has been glorified through history. Mm -hmm. And for a church through hermeneutics or self-dealing to deny that to God, that's the first sin. The sin isn't against the Jewish people. The sin is against God himself who staked his reputation on the perpetuity of the Jewish people, who gave them precious promises and said forever, mm -hmm. not just for a limited time. And it, 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 it almost makes God out to be a bigamist because mm -hmm. he marries his people Israel. He says, you're my bride. And then the church says, oh, but he wasn't really talking about you. Mm -hmm. He was talking about us. Mm -hmm. And those are passages that uh, relate to Luke 13, 34 and 35, in which Israel's house is said to be desolate because she's rejecting her Messiah. But but then it goes on to say, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which tells you this is not a permanent exile that we're talking about. It's a temporary exile. Uh, right. we, get, we get the same kind of thing in the Olivet Discourse, when Jerusalem is trampled down until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, you don't talk about until the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled unless you think there's another time on the other side of it. Or you think about the passage in Acts 3, where Peter gets up and he says, you know, um, 
heaven must hold the Messiah until the times of refreshing come that have been written about in the prophet in the holy prophets of old. So you've got these three until passages, all of which are saying, yes, there's a time in which Israel is suffering. Uh, a judgment for her rejection of Messiah, for her form of covenantal unfaithfulness, but it's not permanent. It, it's temporary, and it looks forward to a time when there's going to be a reintroduction, and then the beauty of this particular example is not only do we have Jesus teach it, not only do we have Peter teach it, we also have Paul teach it because, of course, in Romans 9 to 11, we've got the anticipation of Israel being grafted back in when she was grafted out, when Gentiles were grafted in, as, as Paul's discussion of this period, looking forward to a time when God will be faithful to his promises and will keep uh, his commitments. So all of this is important in thinking through the question of, has Israel been set aside by anything that's been done for the church? And the biblical answer to that is, it's one of those questions you can answer in a short reply. The answer is no. no. May yeah. it never be. Yeah. So, Darryl, yes. One of what one of the one of the issues that I know really concerns me, and I'm sure David, because we lead Jewish missions, and the the goal. I mean, overall, the goal that that we have is to see Jewish people come to faith, be discipled, and become fruitful uh, servants of the Lord. I mean, that's what it's all about. And historically. The greatest motivation for Jewish evangelism has been an understanding of the role of Jewish people in the second coming of Christ. And so because of passages, as you just mentioned, Matthew 23, uh, verses 37 through 39, particularly 39, and in Luke, where one day we understand that a final remnant of Israel will cry out, Baruch Hababa, Shem or blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and the prophecy of Zechariah 12, 10, where they will look upon me whom they have pierced, mourn for him as mourn for an only begotten son, uh, precipitates the coming of the Lord. And so Christians have always been, motiv been motivated by having the thrill of having at least a part in uh, bringing about the second coming of Jesus, even though we don't know when it would ever happen. But it's, it's it, at least we have a role in participating in God's end-time activities through bringing the gospel to the Jewish people. And when this whole doctrine of uh, that Jewish people are not the Jewish people, it's really a re reference to the church, and so there really is no end-time sort of inclusion of the Jewish people, uh, that diminishes the motivation for Jewish evangelism, and I will say that this interpretation of Scripture even predates Darby and goes all the way back uh, to the latter Middle Ages. It goes, it, it was uh, it, the Scottish divines, um, Shane, Fairbairn, um, even our old Cotton Mather in the United States. It, it was a almost a Puritan doctrine for, for a long time uh, that understood that the end-time remnant coming to Christ precipitates the second coming of the Messiah, and that causes our, us to be highly engaged in reaching Jewish people. But when you lose that motivation, it diminishes people's enthusiasm for Jewish evangelism. One of the things I, I like to tell people when we talk about that particular passage is, I'm so grateful to God that here I am 2,000 years later, a Jew who has said, Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Mm -hmm. And so it's not like, you know, um, John Ryle said, the Jews have been reserved and preserved for some time in the future. God did not set aside the Jewish people in that he is no longer working with them. Mm -hmm. He is. Paul was so insistent, there is to this Always very day. Exactly. And that remnant theology needs to be rediscovered by the church today because it's a jewel in the crown of the blessing of God for all people. And it's an evidence of his ongoing work. It helps us to understand how is it possible that Israel can be back in the land and yet in unbelief? Well, guess what? The greatest openness to the gospel now among any Jewish group is in the land of Israel. Hmm. And so that's indication for believers who are keeping their finger on the pulse of what God, God is doing in the world. Yeah, we, we have been reserved and preserved, but not like pickles on a pickle, you know, in a jar. <laughs> we are in the midst of 
seeing an historical move of God, and we need to see the signs of the times and get excited and reinvest our faith and confidence in the gospel as the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Okay, well, we've kind of made the case here that the Scripture uh, uh, has a place for Israel, has a permanent place for Israel, that there are commitments and promises that God has made to Israel uh, through the Hebrew Scriptures that he keeps forever. It's a reflection of his faithfulness. I've tried to put all the themes together here in one paragraph. Um, uh, but let's deal with one objection. This is, I think, all we have time left to, to discuss, uh, and that's this. Well, it really isn't Israel through whom blessing comes. It's through the Christ, the Messiah, and the, and the means of blessing, the bridge to blessing is through Jesus, not Israel. So why should we expect Israel to have a place when she has re- rejected that Messiah and, and the basis of inclusion is not coming through Israel, it's coming through her Messiah. So if anyone's in Christ, they clearly are in the place of blessing. Israel is not in the place of blessing. So why not say the church has replaced Israel? There it is. I've asked it. Now, um, uh, how, do we, how do we deal with, with that position, David? Well, I think that there's no argument from Scripture for that, first mm-hmm. of all. That's a kind of a, a syllogism that is unrelated to any particular text that I'm aware of. Um, the, you mean the replacement idea? Exactly. Yeah. And the, the, the language of the scriptures concerning this has to do with, you know, the wild and natural branches of Romans chapter 11. Mm-hmm. And the wild branches are everyone who's not Jewish who's become grafted into the rich root of the olive tree. Mm-hmm. And yes, branches were broken off. So I think, you know, all, all that Paul does in that beautiful, you know, picture uh, and what that means has to be the basis on which we understand that and answer that objection. And, and Israel's not being defined and redefined in Romans 9 to 11. I think it's very important to make this point. Israel's not being re- redefined in Romans 9 to 11 because that chapter opens with Paul saying, I'm weeping over the people that I'm talking about. These are people that I wish, uh, that I wish myself would be accursed, that they would be responsive. So we're not talking about an Israel reconstituted as the church when we talk about Israel and Romans. Romans 9 to 11, we're talking particularly about that portion of Israel, that large portion of Israel, if I can say it that way, that up to this point has not been responsive to the gospel and that Paul longs for a time when they will be responsive. So when we talk about the natural branches and those that are broken away, that's the context. That can't be the church. In fact, Cranfield, who's written one of the more important commentaries on Romans and is comes out of a Reformed tradition in doing so, basically introduced his section on Romans 9 to 11 by saying that his tradition had had badly consistently misread this text when they make that transfer in this passage. It just can't work there. Uh, Mitch, once again, I can tell that you're chomping at the bit to chime in, so go ahead. Well, I'm, I'm pretty good with everything you've said. Uh, just some obvious uh, points, and that is I don't really want to be the person that starts debating whether or not our greatest blessings are all in Christ, mm-hmm. because they are. Mm-hmm. And so it's just that if all the blessings are in, so to speak, the ultimate Israel, that, that still doesn't mean that the people that he, that God chose have been dismissed from duty. Mm-hmm. And so one is not at the exclusion of other, but Jesus is everything to all of us, and he is the ultimate fulfillment and he is the bridegroom of, of, of Israel. I mean, so I'm not going to be the kind of person that says, oh, no, no, no. Uh, you know, there are a lot of other blessings outside of Jesus because, uh, you know, he is the ultimate and greatest blessing. But he is the one who also said that you will see me when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. So Jesus, who might be the promise and fulfillment and the ultimate fulfillment and blessings for all that God wants us to have is the very one who said that a remnant will turn at the, at the end at the end of days. And so that would pit Jesus in disagreement with himself. Probably not That's, a good position to be. Follow me? <laughs> yeah, I got that. Yeah. yeah. So go ahead. No, I'm just saying and so uh, he's he, so 
we're dealing with a, a promise and fulfillment theology, uh, which is common today and uh, advocated by N.T. Wright and a lot of, lot of other people. And we, we understand that, you know, these are smart and godly people, and uh, we have to also deal with text by text by text. But I think we, again, have to address the basic hermeneutics and the way that a lot of these dear brothers and sisters approach Scripture. And we're allowed to, uh, with love, contend with each other. And, uh, and so when I look at promise and fulfillment, uh, I can't get away from the fact that God made a promise to Abraham and that God has fulfilled that promise to the Jewish people, first of all, in bringing Jesus the Messiah, and then secondly, in bringing the Jewish people back to the land, and then finally, in bringing Jewish people in the land back to the Messiah, and then Messiah returning and reign as king. I think it's a great story, Daryl. And if it's taken literally, it's uh, much better. So, so the point here is, is that we need to be careful not to shortchange all it is that God has done. God has, has definitely centered salvation in Israel's Messiah, in Jesus, who is the Christ. Uh, That's for sure. We affirm that, and we affirm everybody is affirming that. The question then is, what has that Christ committed himself to do in the midst of that salvation? And part of what that Christ has committed himself to do in the midst of that salvation is to is to show God's faithfulness to the original commitments that God made back in the Abrahamic covenant to to redeem the people to whom he made the original promise. And the inclusion of others is not to their exclusion. Not only Absolutely. that, yeah. not only that, I think it's important to state very positively, and I know you all agree with this, that the Abrahamic covenant is not for the Jewish people the basis of their salvation, mm-hmm. but the new covenant in Jesus. And that those who would, for example, take that verse in Romans 11, and thus all Israel will be saved, and conclude that by being born Jewish, I just have an automatic pass. They've missed the whole context of that, which is a future context yet to be revealed. And in the meantime, and a responsiveness to Jesus in the midst, it, of it. is exactly that moment yeah. of responsiveness that seals the deal, so to speak. And in the meantime, Jewish people who are apart from faith and trust in Jesus, whether in the land of Israel or outside the land of Israel, are just as lost as any other people. And therefore, putting Jewish evangelism back on the front burner of the church as it was in the first century when Paul said the gospel is to the Jew first, and where he practiced that in his own Gentile-focused evangelism is something that I believe will be a sign of the hermeneutics that Mitch is talking about so well uh, being corrected and are recognizing that the church has a primary responsibility to the firstborn. You know, you mentioned uh, Cranfield. Mm -hmm. John Calvin, even when he comments on Romans 11, and who also obviously believes in this kind of replacement theology, nevertheless preserves a place of prominence. He says, in that Israel is uh, the, the Jewish people are the firstborn of Israel. All the promises that God made to them will certainly be fulfilled. Now, I don't accept his, his view of, of Jewish people just being the firstborn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I make that distinction. But even among those who have this replacement theology, their forefathers, so to speak, in the Reformation recognized God wasn't done with the Jewish people. And what the implications of that for the church today has been lost on many who have this mixed-up hermeneutic that Mitch was talking about. So we've got – I just want to be clear for people because we've kind of dealt with two things at once here, and I just want to make sure that they're clearly distinguished. On the one hand, we've got people who are arguing for a replacement theology which says the church has replaced the role of Israel, so Israel doesn't have a future, doesn't need a future. That's one side of the spectrum. But you alluded to briefly another group that says, well, you don't need to evangelize the Jews because they're already in covenant and God's taking care of them. They don't need to embrace the Messiah because they already have their relationship through covenant. And so you're, you're basically saying we don't think either of those positions is actually a reflection of what the Scripture is teaching. Yeah, I would go so far as to say that's a lie from the pit of hell. <laughs> I really feel strongly about it because, you know, they think that they're showing love and tolerance towards Jewish people when they take up that position, but they're ult- ultimately re- 
re- refusing to give the greatest gift, the, the most uh, demonstrable act of God's love toward the Jewish people by withholding Jesus from them. Because this is the pro- that God has taken on the price for our failures on himself, and we are robbing people of that, of that substitutionary work when we make that declaration that they automatically qualify. That's right. Mitch, anything to add? Uh, not particularly. Okay. I mean, I think it, I think it's obvious that there are, there are a lot of Christians who uh, who actually who love the Jewish people and who have Jewish friends and want to be sensitive to the Jewish people. Some have lulled themselves into an evangelistic sleep into thinking that somehow Jewish people have another chance. Uh, in the end times, or that Jewish people would be judged on a different basis than non-Jews. And most of the people who do that, I find, are not well taught, uh, but they have a lot of love for Jewish people. And then you have a whole other group that um, sees the Jewish people basically being included in the church and losing all theological and ethnic distinctiveness, and uh, even forgetting that in, you know, in, in heaven, uh, every tongue and every tribe will have a voice in worship, and it, some people make it out as as if Hebrew won't even ex- exist in that day. And so, I think we need a good balance of it. But again, I think that the importance, or one very practical step that I know that we all should take, is to encourage a good, solid biblical teaching, not to overreact, not to say that people do not love the Jewish people or there's something wrong. I really believe that we need to do more biblical teaching on the subject of God's role and plan for Israel and God's role and purpose for the church. Uh, One is not exclusive of the other. God is glorified through both. Well, uh, I I appreciate you all taking the time to uh, interact with this topic. We started with anti-Semitism and then took a good look at some of the key texts that show that Israel has a future in Scripture and that uh, she hasn't been set aside or replaced. Uh, I know we've only scratched the surface of this topic. Uh, We did a conference uh, in New York a few months ago in which we had multiple hour-long presentations on various aspects of this topic working through systematically the scripture so there's a lot more here and I'm sure we'll come back to this topic in the future but I really do appreciate you taking the time to be with us today and we hope that it's been uh, helpful to those of you who have joined us here on the table podcast where we discuss issues of God and culture thanks for listening to the table podcast for more podcasts like this one visit dts.edu slash the table Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well.